Few people are as qualified to write a book about the copyright wars as William Patry, former copyright counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives, advisor to the Register of Copyrights, senior copyright counsel for Google, and the author of the seven-volume Patry on Copyright, widely held to be the single most authoritative work on U.S. copyright ever written. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off, if we could, by talking about your new book that's written by you as a concerned citizen. Yes. Called Moral Panics and the Copyright Wars, by quoting Thomas Babington Macaulay, the great writer, politician, right. orator. I'll start off with the quote that you use. The principle of copyright is this. It is a tax on readers for the purpose of giving a bounty to writers. The tax is an exceedingly bad one. It is a tax on one of the most innocent and most salutary of human pleasures. And never let us forget that a tax on innocent pleasures is a premium on vicious pleasures. I admit, however, the necessity of giving a bounty to genius and learning. In order to give such a bounty, I willingly submit even to this severe and burdensome tax. Nay, I am ready to increase the tax if it can be shown that by doing so I should proportionally increase the bounty. My complaint is that my honorable and learned friend doubles, triples, quadruples the tax and makes scarcely any perceptible addition to the bounty. It is good that authors should be remunerated and the least exceptionable way of remunerating them is by a monopoly. Yet monopoly is an evil. For the sake of the good we must submit to the evil but the evil ought not to last a day longer than is necessary for the purpose of securing the good. And that's not happening right now. My opinion is not. In my opinion, we've uh, exceeded the length of time to bring about the good results that copyright can, and um, therefore what we have is a system by which works that should be available for use by others for access, for knowledge, for creating derivative works. Which is how creators typically work, from the shoulders of giants. Right, yes, indeed. And I've read the Burton <laughs> etymology of, uh, of that particular saying, going back to Bernard of Chartres. So people will say, for example, that we have an orphan works problem. And I don't think we have an orphan works problem. I think we have a term of protection problem, which is far too long. Right? In Macaulay's day, there were no orphan works problem. Uh, in the United States, before 1978, there was no orphan works problem. Um, so Macaulay and the rest of us you know, should be glad to pay the tax uh, that's sufficient to lead men and women of learning to create works, but as he indicated, we shouldn't do it a day more than that because of the deleterious effect on other authors. It's not a question of authors versus users, it's authors and authors and other members of society. You mentioned orphan works, perhaps we could just flesh that out a bit for the, the listener who may not be aware of what that is. Right. There is a debate in many countries, including the United States, about a problem of orphan works, which itself is, uh, of course, uh, a telling metaphor. Which is something that your, your book really focuses on, doesn't it? Right. Uh, indeed. The use of demonizing metaphors. Right. The original title of the work was Moral Panics, Folk Devils and Metaphors in the Copyright Wars, which I thought was a superior title to the one I have right now. I was told by my publisher that both Amazon and Barnes and Noble's search engines wouldn't take a long title like that and had to be short and pithy. 
working for a company that has a pretty good search engine. I found this particularly <laughs> ironic, but nevertheless, those were the facts, as I was told. So yes, there is a lot in the book about metaphors, and, and the metaphor orphan works is, of course, chosen because it conjures up one's desire to protect those who are defenseless against others who would take their works without permission and use them in ways that the parents wouldn't want and that indeed society as a whole shouldn't want done to the children of those offspring. You know, going back, of course, to Defoe and uh, others' metaphor about works being you know, the, the offspring of their parents. Now, of course, what Google has done is they've come in and they've done a little bit of work or a certain amount of work which enables them to claim parenthood or guardianship of these orphans, scanning them. Right. So not speaking for Google, even though I'm a Google employee, uh, the book wasn't written as a Google employee, and, and I, I never speak as a representative of Google. The Google book search project that you mentioned really is not an orphan works project. Um, it's an out-of-print project where if you want to make the world's information universally accessible and useful to people, where do you find that information? So it turns out that notwithstanding the vast amount of information that's available on the web, it's either web generator that was hard copy but now is made available on the internet, uh, there's much more <laughs> that is not available on the internet in books and libraries and places where uh, if one had access to it, it would make your life delightful, more informative, more knowledgeable, more meaningful. Um, however, you know, great works of literature happen to strike you. Those works are, are sitting there. They're out of print. The publishers aren't selling them mm -hmm. because the, the market, as they have determined, it doesn't exist for them anymore. Yet they're there. And if we knew they were there, <laughs> we would want them. So the question is, how do we bring together those books that are sitting there in out-of-print state with people who would want them if only they knew that they were there. Mm -hmm. So the, the purpose of the Google Book Search project was twofold. One, there was an arrangement that Google made with publishers of in-print books to show a certain amount. However, for out-of-print books, given the vast number of them and the diverse uh, state of ownership, it would be very hard to say that you would have to get permission from everyone before we started the project. So the, really the purpose of it was to make available to people information about out-of-print books. Take them out of the old dusty library and let everyone have a chance to, to see them. It, yes, to see them, and to see them in a way which in the hard copy world would be fair use. Right, so it's it's analogous to bibliographic information, and then you provide links to you know used bookstores, out of print bookstores online where people can go buy them, or if they happen to be in a library to figure out how, how to get access to them. That's what it's about. The problem is though, uh, and again, I understand that you're you're here not as a Google representative, but given that Google is so central to the question of copyright, I, I'm going to focus on it to some extent. If, if you're okay with that. Well, I can always say no yes. to an answer. <laughs> the concern, I think, of some is that because Google has gone and done the scanning work and now has this digital entity, I guess what they're saying is we're the only ones that are allowed to search it. We're not going to let any other company have access to the work that we've done. And is that in the public good or not? Well, I, I don't think those are the facts. 
Okay. In any case, okay. there certainly is nothing stopping any other company from doing exactly what Google has done. They, they would replicate the, the scanning. Process. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And there's there's nothing stopping anyone no. from doing that uh, at all. The concern is, or the question is, well, why duplicate the effort? Well, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the answer to, <laughs> to that would be. It would depend upon who the you is, <laughs> and and what what one's purpose is. Um, I think everyone benefits from having as many possible sources for information as possible. And so certainly the more people that are doing the work of bringing books to people's attention, the better off we all are. I guess, again, the concern, though, the same as uh, Macaulay's concern, would be monopoly. Google would be the only company that uh, that you could go to to access this information. Right, right. but but that, that's not how it's set up. It's not set up as a monopoly. There is, for example, a books registry, which is you know controlled by authors and publishers, not not by Google. And as I mentioned, anybody else can go ahead and do exactly the same thing. The books are owned by libraries. The books aren't owned by Google. Right? Google doesn't have a repository of books for which it has the lock and key. You know, these are books that are owned by libraries. Right, and they've been smart enough, and I guess they've got the resources to go out and, and approach these university and different libraries and get into an agreement with them to do this. Well, there, there are other companies that are, are other libraries or organizations that are doing it too, so yeah. we're not the only one. Let's, if we could then, move from orphans to piracy and theft and the use of those words in the copyright war. Not a constructive use of terms. <laughs> we, we have some indication of what piracy is from the Somalian groups <laughs> that have been engaging in, in real high seas piracy. Probably the best use of that term is for that conduct. An appropriate yeah. use is a defined crime. In the UK debates in 1911, there was a proposal to use the word piracy, and there is an objection to that. It was really quite wonderful that I quote in the book terms like piracy, parasite, thief, trespasser, whatever alliterative letter one wants to start with and go from there. Poacher would be another one. A kleptomaniac Rupert Murdoch used. A digital vampire the Wall Street Journal used. Digital tapeworm, I think, is another one I've heard. None of those are descriptive of the actual state of affairs. And if someone was a trespasser, you'd sue them for trespassing. All of these, I think, are attempts to shape the way that we think about conduct in an effort to achieve rights that you don't have. They really don't advance one's understanding uh, of the issues. They make us feel, us being, I suppose, the general public, feel like criminals. So there was a novelist, for example, in, in New Zealand about two weeks ago, who had on his blog a post and how he regarded library patrons who checked out copies of his novel as parasites. That's just not a helpful way to think of it. You know, in his view, he wanted everyone to buy a copy of his book. He didn't want anyone to lend copies to other people. So let's have a discussion about whether we want people to be able to buy books and lend them to our friends. Right? It doesn't help that debate to describe people who do that as parasites. And yet, I suppose you could see his point of view, but it, it's sort of a mercenary, aggressive mercenary outlook. Well, I, I assume that he's a publisher and that the publisher priced it, and that when the publisher priced it, they priced it knowing uh, what the market would be. And I, th I believe he said that he made a fairly healthy uh, income off of that. I, I think there are other interests too. The only interest at stake isn't 
you know, an author wanting to get as much money as possible, but there are interests in the public in you know wanting to share knowledge, wanting to share information, wanting to be able to sell things that you legitimately buy. I mean, for if that was uh, a photocopy, then you would say yes. You know, you shouldn't be able to photocopy somebody's novel and then hand it around to lots of different people because you're, it wasn't a legitimate sale to begin with, and you're diminishing the market for it. But in a case where you buy a legitimate product, um, when you know, the library buys the product, or a library, yeah. in that case, the library buys the product, yeah. right? You know, should you know one be able to say, well, you know, I'm sorry that you bought my car, but you can't sell it. If you want to give it to your child, that's really too bad. You have to go buy a different car for your child. It you know? distracts once you've finished using it. Yes, that, for him would be that would be ideal that he'd have to go and get another one. Yes, exactly. I, I doubt he would want the same principle to be applied to all the consumer goods that, that he buys. And you know, like it or not, a book is a consumer good at one level as well. Well, plus there's the emotional attachment to books too. If it contains something that you really wish and want your offspring to, to read, or if it's got a particularly beautiful binding, or and all of this emotional attachment disappears if it's just a digital. Yes. Right, we won't be handing down digital copies as heirlooms. No, unless they embroider it with something or <laughs> book as an object and a work of art. Would you say it's in jeopardy right now? I don't think so. I, I certainly love books as objects. You know, I too buy books for you know the the wonderful care that was given to them by the bookbinders, by the artists, by the illustrators. One of the criticisms of the Kindle is the impoverished way, according to some, uh, that displays graphic material. You know, you will never be able to replicate, probably, at least in that particular format. You know, the gorgeous colors, you know, the beautiful relief, the, yeah. the feel. When I worked for the Library of Congress as an employee, of course, I could go into the stacks. And I did that, and it was a fantastic experience, right? The smell yeah. of books, for those of us who love books as objects, uh, can't be replicated on a computer. Uh, or neither can the bite into the paper, can it? Yes, yes. Getting back to the book then, what you show is how the debate has been skewed through the use of statistics. For example, the, the oft-touted 250,750,000 jobs in annual U.S. piracy losses which turns out to be a decades-old, vastly inflated and entirely unscientific extrapolation of a rough estimate of the losses due to fake tractor parts. Right. These are the statistics that those in our society who wish to extend the length of copyright basically to make more money off the, what they have created. This is just a tactic to, to what? Make us feel the ads in, in the cinemas, for example, to make us feel guilty when we shouldn't, they're trying to shape our attitude as well as the legal system. So I would look at it slightly differently. These are figures that are used to obtain political results. And those results could be legislative, they could be in terms of trade issues, and in many such political efforts, you want to be able to point to real economic harm and real economic gain that will come from giving you what you want. And this is what Macaulay did, isn't it? He sort of put a, yes. a number on the public good. Yes, and he pointed out that he was all for it, but that empirically, 
it wasn't going to work out that way. And this is, this is, of course, one of the things the, the book tries to do is, is to make a divide between an evidence-based approach to things and a rhetorical-based approach. And so what you find in those sort of figures is an effort to straddle both worlds mm -hmm. and to create an existential threat and then to back that existential threat up with figures and statistics. Which are bogus. Which are bogus, yeah. <laughs> yes. Or, or at least grossly exaggerated. And so the brilliance of what Macaulay did, of course, was to take both of them on, to say, let's figure out what the principles are upon which we're going to legislate. Right? Is this something we have to do as a matter of necessity? Or is this something that we can do that we do because we believe empirically it's going to accomplish the societal results that we're trying to achieve? And then, if how, it's how the do latter, you put a figure on that. Right. If it's the latter, then you try to figure out in an evidence-based way whether it's going to. So, for example, if you say we're going to go from a system of life of the author plus 50 years to life of the author plus 70 years, a fair way of looking at it is: is there a single author on the face of the planet who would not have created that work but for life plus 70? Was there an author who said life plus 50 is insufficient for me? It has to be 70 years post-mortem or I'm not creating this work. I think it's obvious that the answer is there's no author on the face of it who felt that way. So why would one then extend the term of copyright 20 years if the purpose of copyright is to provide incentives for people to create? That's the sort of approach. And so Macaulay did that very well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a Macaulay-like figure right now <laughs> who has both the ability to summarize things in, in, a, in a beautiful manner that is insightful in terms of setting forth the principles and how the proposal falls short the principles that we say that we're advocating. But isn't that exactly what your book does? Well, you know, I try to at least say these are the principles in which we should discuss this. This is where we've fallen short and let's all work together and try and do better. And to do better is basically to limit the copyright. Yeah, to make no, I, the length of copyright the term extension is merely the easiest example of of, of how we've fallen short. Yeah. But there there's certainly others. So for me, the purpose is to say, along with my friend the late Sir Hugh Laddie, that what we need is effective copyright laws. We don't need stronger laws. We don't need weaker laws. Mm. We need laws that are effective for their purpose. In other words compensating the uh, the creator but allowing for the rest of the creators to benefit. Yes, yes, uh, under, under the theory that we want as many creators as possible and not fewer. There's one other Google question that I, I'd like to, to pose. First of all, it's sort of ironic that publishers will make the argument in favor of lengthened copyright on behalf of its authors but then it'll turn around and, and use the argument against their authors. In, in what way? Well, in the, in the sense, you know, they'll squeeze the author for as much as they can, but use the author and the whole creative process to prolong their protection. On the back end of things, in terms of author-publisher, using publisher in the most broadest possible sense, one finds all of a sudden the copyright is a commodity, and that it's not this magical... Uh, natural right <laughs> that, that one finds in the public-facing debates about copyright. And, and so I think the question you're asking, which is a very good question, is isn't there a disconnect between the public face and how it's dealt with as a balance <laughs> sheet item? And I would say absolutely there is. Finally, getting back to Google, there's a authors and publishers' objection to the proposed settlement 
that's in the courts right now, which basically raises the flag of loss of privacy. In other words, Google would be aware of all of our searching habits and all of the books that we look at in an effort to focus their advertising, I suppose, more effectively. But, but they have this knowledge and they can use it and that's a frightening infringement on our own personal privacy and may curtail the creative output of authors as well for fear of being watched over by, by Google. Well, um, privacy isn't my area, so I really don't have a view on that. You know, the, the, the book is only within the United States, and my, my understanding is obviously that respecting privacy is incredibly important for the company. Uh, I, I, I don't have any special knowledge of that one at all, just because I'm not speaking for Google, which is reason enough by itself, but because I actually lack any, any knowledge to be able to give you an uh, intelligent you answer. A, you might have an opinion on the topic. No, I don't. And, and one of the wonderful things I've learned, the older I get, is that it's an incredible burden to have an opinion on everything, <laughs> especially things you don't know anything about. <laughs> you know? And so at least I tell myself that I've relieved myself of, of what is an obligation that no one really should have to bear. Final, final question, and that is just your thoughts on the future of the book. It's right. kind of a big question. But yeah, uh, so I hope that there will always be a future for the hard copy book. I buy you know, maybe 300 or so books a year, and half or so of those for my children. Uh, I buy chapter book series, you know, which I just bought the A to Z Mysteries, which of course has 26 <laughs> in it, plus specials, <laughs> and Geronimo Stilton, and uh, Magic School Bus, and Magic Treehouse, and Bailey City School Kids series. And my kids are vociferous readers, you know. They don't go to bed without uh, a flashlight and, and reading books. And so I'm trying to train I think I've been pretty successful. The next, you know, generation uh, of at least my family, who you know likes to have hard coffee in their hands, and you know we may read different books for different purposes, and we may read some books in e e form and not others. And uh, there may be some people who will only read e books or or split. But uh, I'd be incredibly sad <laughs> if my own children <laughs> didn't continue to read hard copy books the way that, that I do. Um, I love them and uh, I want them to last for, for generations to come. Thanks very much. Cool, thank you.